3: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm a little bit unimpressed of the discipline and the training level of the Russian forces. As bad and as horrific as this is, we want to make sure that we do not see an escalation. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. My sense is that
2: commodity prices will remain very high, elevated, certainly over the next few months, probably the first half of the year. Do Republicans want to give Democrats a victory on getting tough with China on a political basis? The answer
3: is no. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
4: The war in Ukraine plays out on the split screen, with diplomacy continuing on one side, even as Russia intensifies its bombing campaign on the other. At some point... We will be left with just one. Welcome to the Fastest Hour in Politics with a blizzard of headlines from Washington and around the world. We're going to go through them all and have the latest for you, as always, here on the Fastest Hour in Politics. We'll discuss it all ahead with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. Senator Joe Manchin says he's a no on Sarah Bloom Raskin. The White House says it's standing by its Fed nominee. We're going to get the view later this hour by Sarah Binder, Fed Specialist. And Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and we start the week with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. Talks continue between Ukraine and Russia, but so does the fighting. With the shelling of residential areas around the capital of Kiev now and all over the country, now almost five million people displaced. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan opening talks today with China's top diplomat. They met in Rome for seven hours. The last meeting I read was six. Today they hit seven. Following reports that Moscow asked Beijing for military assistance in Ukraine, something the Russians were quick to deny this morning. But State Department spokesman Ned Price today says the U.S. raised concerns in that meeting. Here he is.
2: The National Security Advisor, uh, our Assistant Secretary, our delegation, uh, met with Yangtze and his delegation to precisely uh, make clear our concerns uh, and to be very candid uh, in terms of uh, the implications.
4: But the administration will not detail what the potential implications are or could be. And that is where we begin today with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, who will soon be out with a book about his time at the Pentagon called Sacred Oath, Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here. Is the U.S. trying to keep China out of this, or does the administration hope to use Beijing to help end this war?
2: Well, Joe, first of all, good to be with you. And I think to answer your question, we would love to have China on the side of the West in this uh, in this conflict, yeah. but uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see that happen. There is a strategic partnership that has emerged over the years between Moscow and Beijing, Uh, This invasion of Ukraine by uh, Russia, however, has placed uh, China in somewhat of an uncomfortable position for reasons we can discuss. But as much as we'd like to have China on our side, I do not see it happening.
4: I'm sure you heard Russia hit a Ukrainian military range over the weekend. It's only about 15 miles from the border of Poland, Secretary. The administration continues to promise severe consequences if Russia hits NATO territory. Secretary, what does severe consequences look like in that case?
2: Well, first of all, I'm familiar with that uh, the facility in Lviv. I was there as Secretary of the Army in 2018, and we had a number of NATO allies along with us training the Ukrainians. And I think the result of those years of training and the arms we pumped into Ukraine have, have really uh, served the Ukrainians well these past three weeks as they really beat back uh, the Russian Army. have done a, a very good job, a surprisingly good job. Uh, that said, to your question, uh, the, the message about defending NATO allies' severe consequences is the right uh, – message to send to Russia. They need to know that we will defend our allies under Article 5 of the treaty and that um, and that we're prepared to act if need be. I have been arguing for some time now publicly that we should be pumping more forces into the frontline states, whether it's the Baltics, uh, Poland, Hungary, Romania, uh, and even Bulgaria. Yeah. I've not seen that happen, at least not the pace I'd like, because we have no idea where this conflict is going to go. Uh, I think it's going to last months, And it uh, and and I don't see Vladimir Putin backing down at all. So we need to prepare for the worst as we work for the best.
4: So you want to see more U.S. forces in Eastern Europe. Do you you want to see more hardware in Ukraine as well, Secretary? There's been a big argument, as you well know, about MiG-29s from Poland, whether those should be transferred. And it's looking like Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill with some Democrats as well could have legislation that maybe forces the hand of the administration on this. What do we need to give Ukraine now?
2: I think first and foremost, we need to keep the supply chains open with regard to uh, anti-armor weapons such as Javelin, javelins, anti-air uh, weapons such as stingers, and maybe even look at providing them with uh, more medium-range air defense systems that some of our allies uh, have, such as S-300s. We should provide them with anti-ship cruise missiles. And then we can get into, more, into other items such as counter-battery radars, uh, and, of course, keep up the ammunition supply. Mm-hmm. The uh, the MiGs, I think we should definitely uh, come up with a plan to get those to them. Now, I, I understand that the Ukrainians have not used all their air force to date, but nonetheless, at some point, uh, they'll need to replenish that. And it's it's not as easy as it sounds. You also have to work out how you provide maintenance for those planes, how you would rearm them, refuel them. All those things need to be worked out. But I, I think the this bipartisan uh, group of members on Capitol Hill uh, pushing the administration is the right thing to do. Uh, we should give Ukraine uh, what it's looking for on this one. Again, it yeah. will take some time, but we should, again, prepare for the long haul. This is not going to end in a, in a matter of weeks.
4: How symbolic would that gesture be if we gave them the MiG-29s, Secretary? I ask you that because the administration seems to have decided it wouldn't actually add a lot of military uh, capability to, to Ukraine, that they'd be better served with more ground-to-air missiles and so forth. It's hard to tell. if Is that a cover line? Or is it true that you give them the MiGs, fine, but they're not going to make a big difference in the war?
2: Well, there is some truth to what the administration is saying. If you look at the these indiscriminate attacks that are being levied on Ukrainian cities, most of them are coming from rockets, cruise missiles, and artillery. Yeah. So they're not necessarily, the majority is not happening from uh, uh, airstrikes. Um, so I think that's why I argue we need to provide anti-aircraft defenses, counter-battery radar that can shoot back at at uh, uh, russian artillery that said at some point uh, the uh, ukrainians may want to go more on the offensive and take use their own aircraft in airstrikes against um russian cruise missiles artillery positions so in that sense it makes it, it makes more sense it, it's more logic so there's truth on both sides of this that's why i would not take this off the table i think we should work toward it because i see this being a long fight this is not something that's yeah. going to end in a matter of days What
4: does the playbook uh, look like right now, Secretary? I know that you don't hold it in your hands, but you have a sense of the the deliberations that go into a conflict like this. I'm sure the U.S. has any number of scenarios that have been mapped out here. But our forces in countries like Poland, since we're talking about that, who are near the border, are they equipped with a range of options to act immediately if, in fact, Russia did cross the border? And and what do those options look like?
2: Well, that's why I argue that we should bolster our forces in those countries, uh, both to deter Russia and to reassure our allies, again, in the Baltics, the Pol- uh, in Poland, in Romania, et cetera. And then if need be, if, if we end up deciding that for we need to do a uh, no-fly zone, at least we'd be in position to do that, yeah. which means not just having aircraft, but you have to have air defense systems. That said, I think it's very unlikely that Russia crosses into a, a, a NATO country. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's unlikely. I think they're in this slow grind to try and seize Kyiv and other cities. Um, they clearly have not met uh, Putin's timeline. And I think we're going to continue to see this encirclement, followed by bombardment, followed by the starvation and te- deprivation of the Ukrainian people Boy. until uh, Putin is able to decapitate Ukraine.
4: We're talking with former U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper here on Bloomberg Sound On. Uh, you saw firsthand, Secretary, what happens inside the political military establishment, when a president starts talking about using nukes, I know we haven't heard a lot about that in the last couple of days from Vladimir Putin, but he he put it out there. Do you think the same safeguards are in place in the Kremlin that we have here in the United States?
2: Well, I, we have extraordinary safeguards. I would hope that uh, Russia is as exceptional as ours. But that said, I know Putin has uh, said this a few times. I, I think it's very unlikely, but we need to take him seriously. And we need to be be prepared to react to that and send all the right messages behind the scene uh, that 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 would be the wrong way to go. Again, I I think it's highly unlikely, but we should take whatever precautions make sense without uh, being provocative.
4: Well, this country saw an instance uh, in which at least we heard after the fact the military establishment was concerned about then President Trump's uh, access to nuclear weapons. Is there anyone around Vladimir Putin who's at that level?
2: I just can't speak to their command and control system. Those are very intricate and sometimes classified uh, ways, both mechanically and the chain of command by which it happens. Uh, Again, I think from my understanding in the past, they've had uh, fairly good systems uh, with regard to command and control. But those are the things we need to understand and explore.
4: Secretary, the role of NATO has uh, has almost been redefined, certainly reestablished. Uh, by this war in Ukraine. I wonder how important you consider that alliance. And if you think that former President Trump was actually uh, authentic in his threat to pull the U.S. out of the alliance and what impact that had on Vladimir Putin's worldview. Look, I think NATO is
2: exceedingly important. It's the it's the uh, greatest alliance, military alliance in history. I served in NATO when I was assigned in Europe. In the uh, early '90s, as an Army infantry officer, so it, it's done. Uh, it, it's done great things in the past. I think uh, this is an unfortunate way by which to rejuvenate the the alliance, but it, it is happening. Uh, I, you know, when I was Secretary of Defense, I pushed to implement uh, implement our national defense strategy, which which part of which was strengthening our allies and partners and making NATO more ready to deal with what I saw, what we saw, as the two greatest uh, threats facing the United States, which yeah. are Russia and China. And those two threats remain, by the way. And as I said earlier, we only see those two countries, Moscow and Beijing, the capitals, coming together in, a, in an alarming way. Mm-hmm.
4: The narrative, though, uh, Secretary, is that Vladimir Putin has helped to to unite NATO. Has Joe Biden also done that?
2: Yes, I, I think it's fair that uh, both men have in one way, shape or form. Uh, I said before uh, the Russia actually invaded that Putin had already failed because he had managed to better unify NATO he had managed to put more uh, uh, more NATO forces on NATO frontline states, and he was unifying Ukraine in a way that he was pushing them more to the West. So I think he's lost on those three counts. The other thing I'd add is the big the big change here is not the increasing unification of NATO. That's important, but also yeah. the major turnaround that has happened in Berlin in terms of how they plan on spending more defense dollars, yeah. how they seem to be abandoning an, a, a policy toward Russia
4: them, which is based like solely on
2: economic engagement. Mark
4: Esper, former SecDef, U.S. Secretary of Defense, many thanks to you. We'd love to talk to you again when the book comes out. He thinks this goes on for months. We'll ask the panel next. This is Bloomberg.
0: Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
3: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
4: Did you hear President Zelensky has a date with Congress? Wednesday morning, 9 o'clock. We'll address Congress virtually, according to a statement from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Came out this morning, and you wonder if he asks again for those fighter jets. Let's assemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis and so much to talk about Jeannie, I'll start uh, with you where we started with Secretary Esper and that's the role that China is playing in all of this. It's been this sort of quiet, tacit approval until today. Seven hours in a room with Jake Sullivan. Uh, is this the last time we hear from Beijing on this? Where is this relationship going?
6: You know, I thought it was a good sign that the meeting was held and I hope that they would continue to talk. But listening mm-hmm. to Secretary Esper say, um, you know, he, he doesn't see China coming to our side. Um, you know, that was one of many things he said that I found particularly chilling. Um, you is know, the
4: point to keep them uh, off sides, though. How about just stay neutral?
6: Well, stay neutral, or the way I, I sort of would play it out, is they'll try to play both sides against the middle. They would won't want to move away from the West totally because of their economic relationships, but they also certainly, you know, the, these uh, two leaders themselves are very close, and they've signed this agreement. So I don't think they're going to necessarily move away from Russia in any concerted way. So I thought they'd play both sides against the middle. I think that's what we might see. But, you know, uh, I, I hope the talks continue, but, uh, you know, we didn't get any assurances out of this meeting, for certain for sure.
4: Rick, what gets accomplished in 7 hours to think of the the number of various angles they could have dealt with here. Are you encouraged by that?
5: Uh, you know, look, I'm not encouraged by anything that China has done, you know, since before the uh Olympics including hosting uh Vladimir Putin as his one big official guest in the world, yeah. uh knowing that uh he had planned an invasion of a peaceful nation. Uh, while he sat there grinning at the Olympics. So, I mean, this just shows incredibly bad behavior for a country that wants to be taken seriously uh, beyond its borders. And so I think, you know, my hope is that Jake Sullivan uh, addressed that and told him that uh, there are a lot of things that the Chinese want to be able to do around the world. Uh, Their economy is completely predicated on trade. And, uh, and if they uh, continue to support the Russians in any way economically or militarily, uh, including shipping weapons to Russia, uh, then, um, then I think there's a likelihood that the dreaded secondary sanctions may come into play, you know, sanctioning those countries that, that, that participate uh, in uh, uh, programs that would aid Russia. And that could be incredibly detrimental to a fragile Chinese economy.
4: Well, that would be that. That's not something that China uh, obviously wants here, Jeannie. We're going to really test uh, China's reliance on the West economically, right? If all of these countries stop doing business with Beijing. Uh, there's a big problem in China.
6: Yeah, I I mean, you can't imagine at this point that that's what China wants or where it is headed. You know, I I don't know how many Americans pay attention in the last few years, but let's not forget how close these two are. You know, Xi Jinping famously described Vladimir Putin as his best friend when they Mm -hmm. met. He said in six years, they've met 30 times. So this is a deep relationship. But that said, the fact that, I hear you chuckling, Joe Matthews. I
4: I just, you know, Vladimir is a best friend. I just wonder how he thinks
6: it's it. a pretty tough one. Right. Yep. But but, you know, that said, it's a bad sign that Russia is turning to China for help at this point. It shows how badly this has gone for them, if that's indeed the case. And to your point, this would be devastating for China's economy. And let's not forget, they're also dealing with a covid surge at this point, closing down a major city as well today. So, you know, they have a lot that to, at risk. And again, I don't see them risking it for Putin or Russia in any concerted way that would make the West turn away from them or sanction them as rick was talking about these secondary sanctions but again this is a deep deep relationship and there may be a point where they need to take sides
4: rick how far does vladimir putin push it toward the polish border 15 miles as we just discussed with mark esper he's been there before this is not some far-flung location uh you get a little closer each time i know we've said you have to cross the border but at what point does this become a real worry for nato as
5: a military problem Oh, I I think we should not delude ourselves. Vladimir Putin wants Russian soldiers on the border of Poland, on the border of Poland, not within five miles, not like, you know, you can see him through binoculars. He wants his guys on the border. You can't come into Ukraine unless you pass a Russian checkpoint. Uh, I mean, this guy is playing for keeps. You know, this is not like... What he says, which is some kind of liberation from, you know, Nazis in the Ukraine, this is I want to own Ukraine, I want to run Ukraine, I want to make Ukraine a vassal state, and I want to be butt up against NATO uh, countries because that's where he thinks the next front's going to come. Do we let that happen or do we have to establish some kind of a DMZ in Poland? I think that I think the DMZ is the free country of Ukraine. I mean, uh, the reality is we can never settle for anything less than status quo ante, which is Russians get out of Ukraine. They re- they return all the the ill gotten gains that they've had from him. They 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 pay reparations to rebuild the country and wow. and they get out. And we have to put enough pressure. On on Putin's administration, and there's no not nowhere near enough of that pressure on today to accomplish that.
4: There've been questions about supply lines, Genie. Not just if we give them the MIGs, but we're putting a whole bunch of material into Ukraine all the time, and it was thought that this may have been trying to target uh, that area. The military said that's not it. But where do you draw the line if we're handing things over the border, Genie, and they and they're blowing up supply lines right on the other side of the border? Do we stay? Uninvolved, like we are now.
6: It is increasingly hard for NATO, the United States, to stay involved, and it's going to be especially hard on Wednesday morning when when you know Zelensky speaks directly to Congress. I think that becomes all that much harder for this administration. It's
4: going to be a fascinating speech, and of course, we'll have ears on it here on Bloomberg. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We stick with the panel, Rick and Jeannie for the hour, and next we compare notes with Sarah Binder. On this day that the Fed has a big question mark over it, we'll tell you why. This is Bloomberg.
3: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg one to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 9.60 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. What
4: the Progressive Caucus must be saying about Joe Manchin today. The senator from West Virginia does it again, crossing his own party, this time saying he will vote against the nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin. Indeed, the big breaker today, the big headline inside the Beltway was not about the war, arguably. It was about the Fed. We'll talk about that next with Sarah Binder of the Brookings Institution. Quite a headline on the terminal. Who would have thought this a couple of weeks ago? Raskin's Fed nomination likely doomed by Manchin opposition. Thought Joe Manchin owed the Democrats one (laughs) after Build Back Better. Not today. As the Democratic senator says, he will not back Joe Biden's nominee for the Federal Reserve vice chair of supervision. Stephen Dennis writing it likely dooms her confirmation in the Senate given broad Republican opposition, and that starts with the ranking member who happened to be on the air here on Bloomberg when the news broke. Pat Toomey, Senator Pat Toomey, ranking member the Banking Committee, you will hear David Weston, this is on Balance of Power, asking him the money question. Here's Senator Toomey. Does this spell the end of that nomination?
7: I think it probably does as a practical matter. Um, I'm not aware of any Republican support for um, Ms. Raskin. I have not spoken with every last Republican colleague, so I'm not speaking for anybody, but I'm just not aware of it.
4: And so much for a bipartisan approach, although that's what the White House is saying. Jen Psaki was asked about it again today in the briefing. The White House kicked out uh, a statement suggesting that they are unmoved by this development. Fine, Senator Manchin. We will seek a Republican to vote yes. But in a 50-50 Senate, and after everything we've heard, Pat Toomey has been consistent in speaking about this. He described today, once again, to David Weston on Balance of Power, his problem with Sarah Bloom Raskin. Here he is on Bloomberg.
7: This is a radical change in the mission of the Fed. I mean, there's an important debate to have about how quickly we transition to a lower carbon economy. But those decisions need to be made in the most transparent and open process by people who are accountable to the American people because they have costs.
4: Yeah. Explaining his opposition over prior statements from Sarah Bloom Raskin. You heard this all come out in the confirmation hearing about her views on fossil fuels and how at least some time ago believed – that they might have limited access to banking, for instance, as we try to transition to renewable energy. I want to bring you back here. If we can go back to February and that confirmation hearing, let's just bring you into the room. This is Senator Pat Toomey with Sarah Bloom Raskin herself.
7: Are you saying you no longer hold these views that, that you've stated about allocating capital as a result of your perception of this risk?
6: My views have, have been consistent, Senator. Um, the Fed should not pick winners and lo- losers. They should not be exposing taxpayers to undue risk.
7: Well, so from- okay, that, that, I'm sorry, that, there is no reasonable reading of these articles and speeches that can come to a conclusion other than that you want to be allocating capital away from those industries that are generating large amounts of CO2.
4: Yeah, well, he was never convinced. Sarah Bloom Raskin went on to try to answer more questions. None of the answers seemed to resonate. So here we are. Statement from the White House. I'm jumping all the way to the last line after they talk about how well qualified she is. "Quote: We are working to line up the bipartisan support that she deserves so that she can be confirmed by the Senate for this important position. Nothing to see here. Move right along. As we introduce Sarah Binder, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, Poli Sci Professor at George Washington University, and author of The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. Sarah, thank you for being here.
8: Sure. Thanks for having me.
4: Is this as good as over?
8: Well, that seems to be the writing on the wall here. There's not been uh, a Republican willing to come out uh, and say that they would support uh, Bloom Raskin. Yeah. So uh, it seems that this candidacy uh, for the Fed's vice chair of supervision probably is not going to happen.
4: So the other four get split off. Maybe there's another vote. But I wonder, Sarah, when you hear this and you know you've seen this movie before, not necessarily with the Fed, but with other nominees, when you start getting into the grinder on Capitol Hill, is it up to Sarah Bloom Raskin to withdraw? The White House doesn't want to turn around and, and cave on this. Is it up to the nominee?
8: Well, I think that's often uh, what happens is the nominee, who themselves often don't want to go through uh, the process, uh, will want to withdraw. We don't know exactly what will happen here, but it would I would not surprise me uh, to see that outcome.
4: And then you get four uh, nominees. Do the rest all pass? All are confirmed? (laughs)
8: That seems to be uh, what's happening here. Manchin even last week said, let's uh, not go ahead on Raskin and you know, go ahead with the other four. So yeah. it looks like there will easily be 50 Democratic votes uh, to confirm the other four.
4: There's a party line on Sarah Bloom Raskin. We heard it a couple times there from Pat Toomey. We we essentially heard it from Joe Manchin, even though he's in another party. The White House says she's answered every question. Is this fair, the way this is being dispatched by Republicans?
8: Well, Republicans did play hardball here. They boycotted the committee vote. Uh, And in a 50-50 Senate, in a 50-50 committee, evenly balanced, that would break the rules if Democrats went ahead. Mm -hmm. So there was hardball for sure. Uh, They could have just shown up and (laughs) voted against her, uh, but they they didn't do that. She'd have the job Um, right
4: now, right? Well, well, I guess Joe Manchin would have stopped that from happening.
8: (laughs) For sure. that would have likely would have happened before uh, or at a confirmation vote uh, on the floor. So, I mean, the issue here, I think, more generally uh, is she was accused by Republicans of really sort of that she would be a rogue regulator, even though she has a career of public service uh, behind her. Right. Even as high as the deputy treasurer,
4: (laughs) including on the Federal Reserve, which is one of the real ironies here. Absolutely. Uh, So, okay minute left here, Sarah, we've got a Fed meeting this week. The White House is telling us that the Fed is essentially working with one hand tied behind its back in the fight of our lives against inflation. Are they right?
8: Well, the, the Fed, I think many believe it's behind the eight ball uh, and it has, to, as it said, it's got to start tightening, uh, but it's not so easy. Given supply shocks, uh, demand uh, from from, uh, from Americans, um, it'll be hard. Uh, they want to avoid a recession, uh, but also they have to kind of prepare us, I think, for potentially higher levels of inflation um, than we've been used to.
4: How long do you think uh, until the nominees are confirmed and all of these seats are filled? We'll say the four. Obviously, the president may need to come up with another. But to get these four in place, are we weeks away?
8: Oh, I think we're Easily weeks. The average of late has been several months for these nominees, and they're already two months in. So, I'd say a couple months, uh, possibly earlier, but uh, they have to find time on that Senate floor for them.
4: Sarah Bender, thank you for your view on Sound On. This is Bloomberg.
0: Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry, and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.
3: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
4: So the convoy strikes again. The people's convoy. If you're stuck in the mess in Washington, D.C., I saw it and I salute you. We'll talk more about it in a moment as we reassemble the panel here on Bloomberg Sound On with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, Joe Manchin says he's a no vote on Sarah Bloom Raskin. For the federal reserve vice chair for, of supervision we were just discussing this does the white house stand a chance of getting a republican vote what do you make of that statement
5: no they don't they don't stand a chance uh, i think uh senator toomey was absolutely spot on gee if he's unaware uh as ranking member of the judiciary of any republican who's <laughs> willing to support him i doubt if the white house is going to find one right and so look i mean they got to say this kind of stuff because they're trying to be polite to a nominee, nice of her to be willing to serve. Uh, she's got to pull the plug. This, 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 Democratic Party drags itself through more mud than Republicans could ever do, and this is just another self-inflicted wound that needs to it fix it. Move on. Wasn't this supposed to be the easy on. part,
4: Rick? I thought these were all going to sail through after the bitter divide on Build Back Better.
5: Well, I think I think if I were in the White House, I'd be calling my legislative affairs guy. I said, did anyone bother asking Manchin about this six months uh, ago? I mean, like, why did we go this far if we weren't right. going to get his vote? And this was never going to be a vote he was going to cast.
4: So this is a story about being caught by surprise uh, by someone in your own house here, essentially, Jeannie. I mean, my goodness. Uh, do they need to bring Joe Manchin in, have him write the next version of Build Back Better, and select the replacement nominee?
6: Well... <laughs> They definitely need where his. We are. That is kind of where we are. The power of the Joes, Joe Matthew. Um, huh. But you know, <laughs> but you know, I, I also think, uh, and uh, you know, not to be conspiratorial, but I also think that this may not have been as much of a surprise to, particularly, uh, the president as we may think. Um, Now, he'll never say that publicly. But, you know, Rick is right. I mean, if if nobody bothered to ask Joe Manchin and this just came up out of the blue, that, you know, shame on them. But I have a feeling that this also serves Joe Biden's interests at this point. They need these nominees confirmed, at least the four. Uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, she is a wonderful nominee, as they said, but she has always been something of a gift to the progressives. Mm -hmm. She has always been a tough sell to the moderates and the rip- and the conservatives. So this way
4: he doesn't have to cave and look like he's given up on her.
6: Absolutely. And I think that's why what we will eventually see is she will withdraw her nomination. The last thing the White House wants to do is pull it. I wasn't surprised. They said, we're not going to pull it. I think she withdraws her nomination. They push the other four through and then they find somebody else. Um, You know, th- that that's uh, really where we're at at this point. And I don't think anybody can be surprised in a 50-50 Senate. Somebody who has the record she has has made the public statement she has has a tough sell for republicans and moderate democrats
4: is there another short list rick who do they pick
5: after this did we lose rick maybe we points it out doesn't have you know the rep that uh that 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 she did so um they just need to move on this is this is a real problem they they, they keep you know, messing with this narrative, the poor Fed's got a hard job to do and now it's embroiled in this. They don't need that. Uh, they need to focus on inflation, inflation, inflation and fixing that problem. Because if they don't fix that problem, it doesn't really matter who they put up because, you know, nobody's going to get confirmed in the next two years if Republicans take control of the Senate.
4: Uh, we missed a little bit of that, Rick. If you can back up. A little, so is there a short list right now or or what's the point? The, where was the point you were going to?
5: I, the point I'm, I was making is it really doesn't even matter if there's a short list because uh, if, they, if, they, if they don't start working on this inflation issue you know, with the team that they've got, yeah. uh, they're not going to win the midterms, and, and as a result, they're, uh, they're not going to get anybody confirmed.
4: Well, Jeannie, at some point, they're going to have to start floating balloons, right? Do they, in fact, sit down with Joe Manchin? Who do they want to talk to here? Who does the president need to talk to to make sure that this is a good idea when the sequel— uh, comes around.
6: Uh, talk to Joe Man- Manchin. You know, when these nominees were made, there were other people on the short list. I suspect they go back to that list. There were people like William Spriggs from the AFLC um, I. if I got that correct. Um, there was Raphael Bostic. He was on the list. Roger Ferguson, Seth yeah. Carpenter. There was a there was a short list of people. And obviously, they got Lisa Cook. They got Philip Jefferson, Leo Brainerd. obviously Jerome Powell. So there are other people on that list. But certainly you need to start with Joe Manchin. Anybody who could say no is who you need to start with in a 50-50 Senate.
4: Rick, do you buy this uh, whole Federal Reserve? My, uh, We're doing this with one arm tied behind our back. We can't fight inflation until the seats are filled. Obviously, Jay Powell is going to be there either way.
5: Yeah, it's a bit of a cop out. Uh, Jay Powell's been there. Uh, he's working every day uh, and very hard. Uh, this is not an easy task to perform. Uh, they've got a lot of uh, conflicts within the Fed now on what they need to do as far as their policy, how tough do they want to be? Yeah. Are they going to go hard on you know, these uh, interest rate increases and, and the runoffs? Are they going to you know, shorten the time on the runoff or are they going to be more dovish? They've got really important decisions to make and they can do it with the crowd they've got, but they, they need to have no further uh, distractions. They need to be singularly focused on the economy and not all this talk about who's going to serve on the Fed. Well, a lot more to
4: follow on this one. This kind of snuck up on us. It was right around the the 12 o'clock hour, as I mentioned. It was right when Balance of Power was starting, right as Pat Toomey sits in the chair. Blammo. There's your news for today, everybody, because you needed more. Now, the other news uh, today inside the Beltway that we haven't really gotten to yet is hitting everybody as they go home. It depends on what direction you're going. And by the grace of God, I saw it from the other side. The People's Convoy. We talked about it. Remember they were driving around the beltway going in circles like a NASCAR race? Well, this time, they actually went into the District of Columbia. As I read in the Washington Post, People's Convoy drives through D.C. After permit for organized demonstration downtown partially denied, oh man, they took an exit off the beltway. Came into the district for the first time since this whole thing Uh, began last month and so police got real serious about this and started blocking all the exits into downtown so if you were one of the poor souls who got caught on the 14th street bridge or 395 or wherever you ended up across town you're probably still sitting there eastbound traffic crawling along a four mile stretch from the potomac river To the Anacostia right in the middle of the day. It was standstill. You can say crawl if you want. It was standstill when I saw it. Jeannie, my goodness, the people's convoy managed to actually bring some business to a standstill in the city of Washington. Is there a security concern?
6: You know, was Ted Cruz leading it like he was at I the didn't Speedway see him coming out of the <laughs> a few truck
4: days ago? <laughs> That's right. No, he's
6: a fan. Yeah, he is a fan. He he led it from the Hagerstown Speedway to the D.C. Beltway on Thursday. <laughs> um, you know, if I said Hagerstown, right? I think I said Hagerstown. 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 Yes, Hagerstown. Oh, jeez, oh, jeez. Uh, sorry to everybody. Happy. Yeah, everybody in D.C. that area. I'm sorry. Um, you know, it, there is going to obviously be a security concern, but but the the officials seem like. They have it under control. Like I feel badly for anybody like you stuck on the road. You know, I'm speaking <laughs> no, I, to you from I New York. Got away with it. Yeah, I'm from New York, and I could tell you the traffic around here is a nightmare, but not because of the convoy. So uh, my heart goes out to everybody.
4: <laughs> Our producer, Matt Shirley, reminds us God, I hope Tim Kaine, Senator Tim Kaine, was not on the wrong highway when this thing started. God knows uh, he's got wherewithal. Uh, Rick, is this for real? I mean, it's easy to make fun. Because the whole thing is a little bit silly, particularly when you're protesting a federal mandate that does not exist that was you know the the vaccine mandate uh, but if you can shut down the nation's capital like this in the middle of a Monday afternoon, does that not present security worries
5: sure uh you, you you want roads open in case anything happens and 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 you know we we've singularly focused now on you know the new bad guys on the block, you know Russia and China. Uh, but there's still all kinds of other uh, bad people around who want to, you know, create a lot of problems, and and why give them opportunities in our nation's capital uh, to to create distractions from from the hard work that we're getting done? And as you point out, for 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 no other reason than their own narcissism, you know, to tie up traffic, uh, what they protest is actually solved. So go home. Isn't that the truth? Listen to
4: Rick Davis. By God, you'll always probably work things out okay. If- Things will work out if you just listen to Rick. Thanks to Rick and Jeannie, our panel for Monday. March is Women's History Month, and every day this month we're celebrating significant moments with Renita Young. So let's do it right now. Here's Renita.
9: On this day in women's history in 1969, Barbara Jo Rubin becomes the first female jockey to win a race against men at a nationally recognized racetrack in the United States. She piloted Bravey Galaxy to victory in front of a packed grandstand at Aqueduct Racetrack in New York. About a month earlier that year, Rubin also made history as the first female jockey to win an American parimutuel race while she was in West Virginia. When Reuben was six years old, she was diagnosed with polio and began riding shortly after as a form of exercise and to help strengthen her legs. She made her competitive debut in Nassau, Bahamas at the Hobby Horse Hall track. She made big waves as a rookie, but her career was cut short by injuries after 89 mounts. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio.
4: Renina, we thank you and appreciate you spending the fastest hour in politics with me. I'll be back here tomorrow on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll wind up the panel and we'll have markets covered for you, along with everything in the world of politics as we connect the dots. Between Washington and Wall Street, Monday's down. Watch out for the convoy. I'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.